0: Welcome to Your Active's Tech Brief Podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at several key aspects of compliance with the Digital Services Act. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is Your Active's Tech Brief Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Asha Hallen, Advocacy Director in the Europe Office of the Center for Democracy and Technology, and by Matthias Vermulen, Public Policy Director at AWO. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. Great to have you here. So uh, the CDT, in short. Um, has recently published a study on a specific provision of the Digital Services Act, the one that concerns the the, uh, access to independent researchers that very large online platforms are meant to provide. Um, Asha, your organization has raised some concerns about potential unintended consequences of this provision. Uh, What did you find in your research?
1: Precisely. And and thank you so much again for the invitation uh, to speak with you today about our new research. Uh, CDT, as you rightly uh, created our acronym there for us, so we like to use this too, is a not-for-profit organization um, advocating for the uh, respect of fundamental rights and international human rights in EU tech policy. And this particular issue was a high priority for us when it comes to the DSA, because independent researcher access to data is at the very forefront of improving transparency and increased accountability. We've done a lot of research on this area over the last 14 months, but this latest report zooms in on one critical question of whether researcher access may lead to an increased and unlawful access by law enforcement agencies to the same data as well. And we wanted to investigate this question because we know that law enforcement have used social media data for surveillance in the past. So we really felt like we should dig into this specific question. Now, the report is uh, over 80 pages long, so I promise I won't give you uh, too much there. So in, in brief, what the report does is analyzes legal frameworks uh, for protections against this in both the US and the EU. And our specific findings show that European law has strong protections that should prevent unjustified law enforcement access to data. And for this, we can look to the GDPR, the EU Charter, the European Convention and the law directive for those protections. But there are practical reasons that may make it easier for law enforcement to access that data. So we developed some recommendations that are particularly useful to our colleagues in the European institutions currently developing the Delegated Act for this specific provision to close those practical gaps. So that includes protecting researchers who may not have the knowledge or resources necessary to challenge unjustified law enforcement demands directed at them for user data. So this can include data sharing agreements to preclude this. Making sure that law enforcement agencies cannot directly apply for status as researchers considering the rule of law and fundamental rights concerns. And lastly, and more broadly, making sure that researchers and civil society are not weaponized, especially in areas of democratic backsliding by law enforcement agencies to gain indirect access to that data.
0: And Matthias, I understand that AWO contributed to the EU side of the report. Uh, Asha mentioned uh, there are some concerns in particular uh, with the US. Do you see any such problem on the European side as well?
2: Well, I think it was a very important and timely report of, of CDT on this particular topic. And I think I very much agree with what Asha has been saying in the beginning as well. Like for me, for uh, our organization as well, when we provided input to the study is that there is one very big takeaway from the report here. And that is that in, in the European Union, disclosure of social media data to independent researchers does not impact the legal requirements, sort of governing the disclosure of data to law enforcement. And I do think indeed there are perhaps some um, changes and differences with the United States, where, of course, in the EU, we have a much more robust data protection regime as well, and GDPR and all other relevant national and EU legislation keeps on um, applying, of course, in, in this situation. So I think that in practice, again, like within the European Union, there is not that much of an issue and I'm, I'm personally, I'm not actually too worried about sort of law enforcement um, uh, agencies in the European Union trying to use this mechanism to um, get access to uh, data for different purposes as well. And I think in fact sort of during the, the negotiations of the of the Digital Services Act, legislators did think about this scenario to a certain extent as well. And so the DSA, for instance, states specifically that data access requests from uh, regulators, from national member states, for instance, cannot include requests to produce um, specific types of information about individual users for any other purpose, but to assess compliance of a company with the um, Digital Services Act, actually. So law enforcement agencies trying to get data from researchers using Um, this potential backdoor would also violate um, the spirit of the Digital Services Act. Um, And of course, that doesn't mean that there are no potential privacy risks related to the sharing of personal data with researchers. But I do think the DSA lays out already some very basic principles that mitigate these risks. And also, as Asha already mentions, um, we have actually at least uh, 12 more months to mitigate a a couple of potential unintended consequences through these delegated um, acts where the European Commission will specify a little bit more in detail for the procedures related to access um, to data, for instance.
0: Uh, Going back to you, Asha, uh, this article of the DSA is not the only one that relates to law enforcement. Um, the regulation also introduces the concept of uh, trusted flaggers uh, there, it also regulates the takedown orders for illegal content. How do you see all of these fitting together?
1: Precisely right. And I I really want to draw upon the excellent point made there by Matthias in terms of a lot of safeguards being built in when looking at individual provisions uh, where law enforcement um, are specifically named in the Digital Services Act. And and part of this research was also so that we could apply this to our overall analysis um, of the DSA and making sure that of course the preservation of rule of law was um, paramount. And we must be frank really when looking at those other provisions that you mentioned that I'll be happy to outline in a little bit more detail, but We live in a society in which historically marginalized and racialized communities continue to face discrimination, such as disproportionate surveillance from law enforcement bodies. So we really looked at the DSA as a whole and where law enforcement were mentioned from that particular perspective. Now, the final text of the DSA, as mentioned, specifically states that law enforcement agencies may order providers of intermediary services to act against one or more specific items of illegal content or to provide certain specific information. Um, But in combination with this, these agencies can also be designated as trusted flaggers whose reports must be treated with some level of priority. Now, it does not take a huge leap to see a fundamental conundrum here. Would notices from law enforcement agencies who are trusted flaggers be seen as tantamount to those orders, the potential abuse of the trusted uh, flaggers provision by law enforcement entities to bypass the legal orders process is a genuine concern, despite the safeguards that were built into each of those provisions individually. Now, if the practical gaps in our report are not closed, you have a situation in which law enforcement can potentially, there are of course legal safeguards, but can potentially gain access to vast amounts of social media data, submit high priority notices as trusted flaggers, and the legal orders for information on users. So this for us raised the question, as an organisation who's always striving to ensure the upholding of international human rights framework, the fundamental question of whether the DSA has significantly empowered these agencies appropriately or not. So this is a fundamental rights concern that we have and we sincerely hope and look forward to working with our colleagues in the institutions in closing potential gaps but we also thought about it in taking into consideration the brussels effect so these provisions could all too easily be weaponized against opposition voices in other jurisdictions as well so there's a fundamental responsibility to make sure that this this has got right so Where the gaps can be closed, they must be closed, and where the mechanisms for accountability and public scrutiny over orders and the trusted flaggers provisions exist, these definitely must be taken very seriously.
0: Uh, moving on to uh, the, the content moderation side of things, uh, Matthias, last week we have seen platforms like Facebook, Twitter, TikTok publish their first uh, report on the implementation of the revised code of practice on this information. This is currently a soft law, but it will become a binding code of conduct under the DSA. And and all of these platforms are set to qualify as very large online platforms under the DSA, which comes with a particular regime in terms of due diligence and and responsibility and risk management. So what do these uh, reports tell us about the platform's progress in terms of DSA compliance?
2: Well, Luca, I have to admit that sort of I didn't have enough time yet to go through all of them and to, to go through all of these reports, obviously. They're very long, huh? we have to Exactly. <laughs> if, you, if you just look at the five biggest ones, sort of Twitter, TikTok, Microsoft, Meta, and Google, and I did do my homework for this podcast, Like we're talking about 859 pages in total. So like I haven't sort of managed to read them all, basically. But of course, this is a wealth of information that needs to be scrutinized, right? But sort of like at the very first sort of quick skimming through some of these reports, like I do think you see a couple of trends. First of all, these are very much um, baseline reports, right? They're mainly representing the status quo. And I think that also sort of means that platforms are sometimes, or most of the times actually, like are keeping their cards very close to uh, to their chest in terms of what they're actually planning to do, improve or change in the next couple of months. And I think that's pretty normal if you think that there are still quite some months to go to prepare for DSA uh, implementation actually. And, and I think sort of, sort of some of the companies, they, they mentioned the DSA in passing, but Google for instance, doesn't even mention the DSA once in its 200 plus pages um, report actually. And then I see sort of um, others sort of they do say a couple of things, but they still remain quite vague about their um, potential future plans. Like, for instance, Meta states in its report that it's taking steps to ensure that in line with the DSA, relevant Meta services will be undergoing appropriate independent audits. And what those steps are, of course, we don't know yet at, at this point. Um, I think from others you you very clearly see that they are firmly in the planning phase, right? For instance, TikTok is mentioning that it's that it's exploring um, mechanisms for giving users options to modify or influence what they see on our platform. And I think in general, there's a lot of language on how platforms are exploring opportunities or options to provide more information. So, I think that's also. This is um, these first reports are also a test to a certain extent, where where platforms are testing the waters in terms of how detailed their reporting should be, what will be sufficient, what won't be, and I think there is going to be a really crucial role here for for civil society and for organizations like CDT, for instance, and academics as well to alert the commission um, as well by saying like, hold on, wait a minute, sort of this isn't sufficient. Um, At all, actually. And then I think sort of, uh, and we can say a bit more about this uh, later on, what is really clear is that Twitter really stands out for the lack of detail that it has provided compared to um, uh, the other companies as well, which definitely hasn't gone down well with European Commission, where um, I think even Commissioner Breton, Jourova, but even um, high representative for foreign policy, Mr. Borrell, have made statements basically saying that what Twitter has provided is woefully um, inadequate, actually. Um, so yeah, it's sort of, um, Twitter is definitely a negative outlier in the sense that indeed sort of, it's so woefully inadequate that it risks overshadowing the other reports, actually. And we there's not that much attention to what TikTok has provided, what Google has provided and whether sort of that first. Um, amount of information is actually sufficient for the purposes um, of of the code, actually.
0: Uh, I fully share your reading about this uh, being a sort of testing face. Uh, I, I think that's also how the, the commission is looking at it until the DSA will start to bite. Um, but I wanted to go a bit deeper on this thing of Twitter, Russia because uh, this used to be uh, one of the most, if not the most open platforms in terms of giving access to researchers, for example, to evaluate its content moderation system. Um, And we are uh, saying now that they want these uh, to be a paid service. So what do you think that Twitter is backpedaling on something that they will have to do uh, once the DSA enters into application?
1: It's a really interesting question. And uh, like Matthias, I have not had the time to read all of the, the reports, um, but I did have the time to, to go through the report by Twitter because, unfortunately, it was a bit quicker to be able to go through. Um, and I think we can certainly agree that this lack of openness has already been missed, and that has been felt um, quite profoundly by, by many in this space. There's clearly been a paradigm shift at Twitter without going into too much detail and that I think we're all aware of. And I think we're awaiting more in terms of information and and understanding the impact on what these most recent changes will mean um, in the long term and the short term. I think it's important to note how useful Twitter's API was for researchers. And there were some essential findings that were developed from this access that allowed civil society and others to better map the manifestations of of online harms um, and use this to steer advocacy on key files such as the DSA really in the right direction. So as Matthias pointed out, what happens over the next few months within this testing phase and essentially how the European Commission em- eventually maps out the technical requirements for researcher access will very much answer some of these questions, but we must also remember that the provision that we're talking about today also requires very large online platforms to give access to publicly available data in real time to researchers alongside this higher level of detailed access so essentially what was twitter's api and what it had been doing already so Fundamentally, Twitter has obligations. It will have uh, concrete obligations once the DSA really starts to come into force early next year. And it's important for, for them to be held account and for all platforms to be held to account under these obligations. And so what we hope is that the additional safeguards that we've recommended in our report and elsewhere alongside our civil society colleagues that Twitter and all platforms are much more transparent and take their obligations to not violate any of our fundamental rights very seriously and to make sure that transparency is both effective and meaningful. And this also means ensuring that civil society have the opportunity to be able to Contribute to the oversight and and provide our expertise when it comes to the enforcement um, and implementation of the DSA. Is, as as Matthias alluded to there, civil society are mentioned in the DSA either directly or indirectly more than any other regulation than we that that we have when it comes to these particular policies. And so it's important that. That reference is also taken seriously and that we are provided the opportunity as an equal stakeholder to be able to hold platforms to account, but the enforcement mechanisms to account and regulators as well to make sure the DSA reaches its aim of being a truly human rights centric uh, regulation that aims to make our online spaces safer.
2: Maybe one one thing that I wanted to add here as well and to specifically respond to your uh, question, uh, Luca, as well, like why is Twitter backpedaling here as well? I think it's it's very simple. It's really a short-term commercial decision that is going to spectacularly backfire and potentially will result in sort of fines when the DSA and those specific provisions under the DSA enter into force as well, actually. So I think you can you can see the sort of many of the decisions taken by uh, by Elon Musk in the in the past couple of months they are all motivated by sort of increasing Twitter's financial health and everything that doesn't really fall within that doesn't really get extra revenue is just being scrapped right and so also from that perspective it's very um, cynical to a certain extent to read uh, how Twitter is referring to. Um, studies that some of its teams that were responsible for machine learning and that were doing research on to what extent their recommender systems, for instance, uh, promoted specific piece of political content over others. Um, that it highlighted that research as a really as an uh, as uh, an illustration for why they were how they were actually working on these topics while later completely firing those teams as well. And I think, again, this is a short-term commercial decision that is going to spectacularly backfire.
0: I mean, if I was the commission and looking at Twitter right now, I would be thinking that this is potentially a very easy win for the commission who will have this key role in enforcing the DSA for the largest platforms. Um, We have seen some commissioners being very active and reaching out to Elon Musk directly. Um, So can we expect the commission to go really hard on Twitter to sort of set an example for the other platforms um, to fall in line? And, And if so, Uh, by when can we expect uh, the commission to start biting?
2: I mean, really good questions, uh, Luca, but for me first, of course, like the $1 million question here, or maybe the sort of $100 million question is whether Twitter is going to meet the threshold to be designated as a very large online platform, of course, right? Because some employees last fall, pre the acquisition of Musk, did believe that the company would fall short of that magical 45 million uh, monthly active users threshold uh, ever since the UK has left the European union actually. And tomorrow is indeed the deadline where Twitter will have to provide um, uh, sort of the average amount of monthly users. And there's a couple of other dynamics at play here as well, actually. Like we don't really know yet, like how the European commission is going to count users, like if it's, Everyone that sees a tweet, which can be embedded on other media, then you will definitely meet that threshold. Um, But there are commercial considerations for Twitter as well, right? Like if you say you have less than 45 million active users, you might escape those stringent DSA obligations. But you could also, again, receive um, another hit in advertising revenue since advertisers will react badly to those figures um, as well. But sort of, if we now just assume that um, Twitter will meet that threshold, and I do think it will meet um, that threshold, we need to check a little bit the timeline for implementation, right? Which is sort of, uh, which is slightly complicated. So platforms like Twitter have until tomorrow to send in their um, their user data, after which the commission has to designate which sites are very large online platforms. And then actually from the fall onwards of this year, the European Commission could force Twitter to provide more information on its content moderation practices. And there's a couple of obligations, for instance, regarding ad transparency and recommender systems that can be investigated. But these are really the exceptions. And like, if the EU would really want to start investigations or proceedings against Twitter, it mainly needs to wait for an independent audit to have taken place, which we're will, which will only going to get in, in 2024. And as we all know, like a really a lot can happen in the next eighteen months, like including the potential disappearance of Twitter as um, as a company. I think. But that being said, I do think sort of for um, the commission, like if I would be the commission, like I would want my first investigations to be really a resounding success, right? I wouldn't want to launch an investigation that that um, that wouldn't be sort of. Um, upheld in a court of law, for instance, or where we would lose sort of in an appeals procedure. I think from that perspective as well, sort of Twitter has slowly, you no, know, like rather quickly actually after Musk has taken over and um, replaced Meta as sort of the perfect enemy that could be targeted by an investigation uh, of the European Commission. Despite all the recent calls between um, Musk and, and Breton who seem to call each other now every three months basically.
1: And uh, to that, I I agree with you, Matthias. I think Twitter is is certainly going to reach the threshold. Um, We're seeing some of the the declarations um, from platforms as to whether they meet this threshold over the last uh, couple of days. There are already some declaring that they are not very large online platforms, but I think Twitter will definitely meet that threshold. And I, I still can't talk about the fact that the UK left the EU because you know, it's very difficult, but still, I think it will meet that threshold, but it does raise this fundamental question about this counting of users because there's this element of self-declaration and then applicability based on, on that. And so I really want to support your, your comment about how important the next 18 months are going to be and specifically zoom in on the importance of those, those independent audits and transparency around those audits, how they're going to be conducted making sure that the risk assessments that are done that feed into those audits are are comprehensive and and have that human rights approach as well. Because should the European Commission choose to undergo an investigation into Twitter based on whatever changes happens over the next few months, you'd really want to make sure that you have the backing of the detailed technical but qualitative and quantitative uh, information that you need to be able to conduct those particular investigations. So, A lot can change in the next 18 months. I think it's always good for us to remember that the DSA legislative process was included, uh, concluded in record time. Right. So anything can happen in the in the next 18 months. So really hoping that what we do see is is something that's quite concrete from the European Commission um, in terms of what they're developing when it comes to delegated acts but also that there needs to be a level of fluidity to be able to, to take into consideration those changes or paradigm shifts that may happen in that period of time.
0: On the, on the Twitter um threshold. Uh, As far as I know, because, uh, uh, you know, before uh, the entire Brussels office was dismantled, uh, I understand they were always working under the assumption that Twitter would be available. Although I have to say that this whole um, user calculation was quite messy. The commission said uh, several times uh, that uh, no guidance was needed, that it was self-evident, and then all of a sudden they dropped uh, guidance two weeks before the deadline, which uh, clearly doesn't help uh, that much. But I guess we will just have to see how how, um, the platforms interpret um, these user count once they publish their figures. Um, so I'd like to thank Asha Hallen, advocacy director in the Europe office of the Center for Democracy and Technology, and Matthias Vermulen, public policy director at AWO. Thank you both. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to. To this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evi Chiori. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi, and thank you for listening.